Cuba has been nothing short of spectacular. That's worthy of brief note, if only because most of the rest of the country is in a miserable deep freeze. Somehow, that makes the weather feel even more delicious. Symbolically, that comes close to summarizing America's attitude toward the rest of the world. The weather's just fine here, and don't bother us with your whining about crumbling Asian economies, corroding Russian infrastructure, pandemic disease in Africa, and the growing likelihood that someone in Isfahan is packing an overnight bag with a wherewithal to pop Cleveland with a biological weapon. I have the uneasy feeling that a few decades from now people will look back at this year and say, oh yes, 99, that was one of the last pre-war years. Think about it. The rest of the world holds a significantly more jaundiced view of how wonderful we are than we do. We are so busy promoting our virtues to one another that we occasionally confuse the advertisement with the product. George Soros, who describes himself as amoral in the conduct of his business affairs, nevertheless contributed more to Russia in at least one recent year than did the United States of America. He, at least, recognizes that well-directed charity can have enormous practical and positive consequences for the donor. The platform of generous foreign aid, however, is not one on which any American politician would like to run. Americans appear to have forgotten the generosity and foresight of the Marshall Plan and how it led to the reconstruction of a vibrant West German economy. The rebirth of post-war Japan was only possible because the United States helped the Japanese back under their feet. In Asia and in Europe, the careful calibration of an unambiguous projection of force and a generous policy of foreign aid combined ultimately to achieve the erosion of communist power in Asia and its near elimination in Europe. Foreign aid tends to be cheaper and significantly more effective than our when-in-doubt lava cruise missile parody of a foreign policy, but casualty-free military action plays well in the polls. How strange that we wouldn't dream of tolerating the captain of a cruise liner setting his course by surveying the passengers, but that we have become quite comfortable watching the ship of state being steered by poles. Anyway, the world's in a mess, weapons of mass destruction abound, and we haven't a clue how we would respond to a chemical or biological attack against one or more of our cities. God, it's beautiful outside. I think I'll go sailing. January 4th The northern chill has finally insinuated itself into central Florida. Only Canadian tourists and snowbirds from Michigan and Minnesota and this reporter are walking around in shorts. My excuse is that I never made it past third form at Abbott's Home School in Staffordshire, England, and consequently never reached that exalted status at which I would have been permitted to wear long pants in winter. This has inured me from the thighs down to any temperature above 20 degrees. The Spartan rigors of a British boarding school in the early 1950s deserve their own footnote as we come to the end of this century. I rather doubt that my parents, German Jews who fled to England just prior to the Second World War, would have sent me to boarding school at age eleven had there been any other option. 
They, however, were back in Frankfurt fighting for reparations in the newly re-established German court system. They didn't want me going to school in Germany, and there were no relatives with whom to leave me in England, hence Abbott's home. One or two flush toilets may have existed at Abbott's home in 1952, but if so, they would have been for the private and exclusive use of the headmaster and senior members of his staff. The rest of us used outdoor latrines. These were so utterly lacking in 20th century complexity that they cannot have differed much from whatever the ancient Saxons used. Two wooden footrests above a pit constituted pretty much the entire works. I lie. Generations of Anglo-Saxons, perhaps with a little help from the Picts up north, had contrived certain additional conveniences adopted at Abbott's home. A bucket with some sand. Civilized people do not leave their waste uncovered by at least a handful or two of sand. And there had to have been some toilet paper, although memory does not serve. Back to the frigid north tomorrow. Washington, D.C., January 5th. It is an act of will to become re-engaged in the impeachment morass. It now looks as though the trial will get underway on Thursday, and if there are those who know what form it will take, they're doing a brilliant job of keeping that from the rest of us. The White House is lofting trial balloons, suggesting that the meek faces the President's lawyers showed before the House Judiciary Committee will be replaced in the event of a full-blown trial by a more combative stance. I am infected by a rampant case of beyond the beltway, who gives a crap? Bill Clinton may yet convince me, as he seems to have convinced much of the rest of the country, that if you appear not to care, you can be impeached by the House and tried by the Senate, and it won't matter. Of course, it will matter if he's convicted, but no one seems to believe that likely. It seems to me that the Senate is desperately looking for some form of Goldilocks solution. The Constitution has left the senators with the option of doing nothing, too mild, or throwing the president out of office, too harsh. What's needed is a just-right option. In analogous situations at the local level, juries reluctant to sentence an 18-year-old to 10 years of hard time for a third possession of marijuana engage in the process of jury nullification. They simply refuse to convict. They, however, don't have to run for re-election. We in the media are at the moment in the awkward position of knowing nothing and interviewing smart people who also know nothing. But we are confronting a story that, on the face of it, is so important that we can't ignore it. January 7th I think most Americans would be surprised to discover how many of the senators now grappling with what form this trial should take are quite genuinely torn about trying to do the right thing. The ultimate irony is that we wouldn't be where we are today were it not for the unanimous decision of the Supreme Court that Paula Jones' civil case against the president should proceed and that it would have no undue impact on Clinton's ability to carry out his responsibilities as president. Now Chief Justice Rehnquist is presiding over the legal pageant that proves just how wrong he and his eight colleagues were. 
The president could, of course, save the country from the distress of these next few weeks, but resignation would be a remarkably selfless act, and some of those who have worked or are working closely with him tell me they don't think it's in his character. No, we will all have to witness this trashy spectacle so that Clinton can spend the rest of his life speculating on everything he might have achieved if his political enemies had not taken such shameless advantage of his open fly. In the final analysis, it is true that the right wing in this country has taken every opportunity that Clinton has given them to bring him down. It is also true that he has given them almost every opportunity that they have taken. Potomac, January 10th I'm sitting in the addition to the house we've lived in since 1971. Our youngest daughter, Tara, was born on the day our offer on this house was accepted. We built the addition when we learned that Grace, my late mother-in-law, had cancer. The idea was that Grace Ann's parents would move in with us, and if the cancer proved fatal, as it did, my wife's father, Gene, would continue to live with us. My mother-in-law died here in this house, but long before the addition was completed. Gene did move in with us for a couple of years, but then met and married Penny, another wonderful woman, and moved into her house. So now it's just the two of us occupying a house that's significantly larger than the one in which we raised four children. We are fortunate in that three of our kids live in New York and the fourth lives down the road in Washington. They visit regularly, and it's good to have the space when they all descend at once. Still, there is something out of kilter in the way we modern suburbanites relate to our living space. Since our children tend to move according to the locus of their work, our homes empty out just about the time that we've expanded them to their maximum size. January 11th Let me try to make sense of this one more time before the Senate and the White House turn everyone's brains to mush. Is this about privacy and sexual relations between consenting adults? Well, is it? If we're going to accept Clinton's tortured definition, it's certainly not about sexual relations. Granted, that's a nitpicking technicality, but for good or ill, it's his. If we're going to give any credence to Paula Jones, there was nothing consensual about her encounter. She was a state employee. He was the governor. She says he asked her to perform fellatio, which she says she rejected. If that account is true, that would seem to constitute sexual harassment. The political motives of those who plucked Jones from obscurity may not rise to the level of pond scum, but if, unbidden and unsought, the governor presented his Johnson for use as a popsicle, his rights to privacy do not seem like an appropriate concern. Monica Lewinsky says she performed oral sex on Clinton for the first time while she was still an intern at the White House. That information could have been helpful to Jones in her sexual harassment lawsuit against the president. But Lewinsky filed a false affidavit. She and the president had, she testified, previously agreed on a cover story to conceal their relationship. Did he tell her to lie? No, she says. But what is a cover story that's fabricated 
in order to conceal a relationship, if not a lie. The truth would certainly have been an embarrassment to the president and humiliating to his family. It could also have made Jones's lawsuit more convincing in court. Was Lewinsky offered a variety of jobs to keep her from embarrassing the president or to keep him from losing a sexual harassment lawsuit? The answer is probably both, but this case is not about privacy and it's not about consensual sex. Both of those came later. This is about a gawky, not terribly impressive young woman who probably did reject the chance to service the governor of Arkansas in a Little Rock hotel room. That made her a convenient political pawn for Clinton's enemies and a lying piece of trailer trash to his allies. What bothers me to this day, though, is how Jones knew what kind of sex Clinton would ask for. He insists, after all, that he neither did nor said anything inappropriate to her in that Arkansas hotel room. How did Jones know, years before, any of the public revelations made it common knowledge? Washington, January 14th Most of the House managers of the case against William Jefferson Clinton, as they keep intoning, are in grave danger of being indicted themselves for terminal tediousness. They're battling years of television conditioning that keeps us moving in the direction of bright brevity. Perhaps no one should expect that Henry Hyde, Jim Sensenbrenner, the substitute high school teacher whom everyone hated, as one of my colleagues suggested earlier today, et al., should apply the six-and-a-half-second soundbite rule that seems to prevail on television newscasts these days. But it's strange that all these politicians who have internalized the importance of brevity and pith in their various campaigns are now reduced to endless oratorical flailing. The U.S. Senate is unaccustomed to sitting silently on its hundred duffs, listening to lectures about its constitutional duty. The House prosecutors must know that they are only going through the motions but seem incapable of reining in their rhetoric. Washington, January 19th It has been a good day for the President. His lawyer, Charles Ruff, did a first-class job of raising questions about the facts underlying the case made by House managers, and he demonstrated with a timeline chart that while the President's good friend Vernon Jordan did intensify his job search for Lewinsky on the day that a federal court judge in Little Rock ruled that other women...